Please turn to the book of Genesis, chapters 2 and 3. Father, let the Holy Spirit-inspired narrative, story, record, and the way that He purposed to have it told ring powerfully, heavily, and ultimately joyfully to our hearts as we read the story of the fall of man. In the name of Jesus, Amen. <coughs> okay, last few weeks is we're moving our way through redemptive history in a real nutshell here. We have seen and contemplated that God in His eternal being His very nature has always been infinitely, gloriously happy, satisfied, contented as He has loved the image of Himself reflected back to Him in the person standing forth for all eternity, His eternal Son. And vice versa. And that spirit of community and delight and love and perfection and beauty is personified in the Spirit. God's love, we said it this way, you can go back to their tapes where I unfold these terms more, is eternally His need love eternally met. Then, then why would God create? Not out of need love. Not to get something He did not already have. But to overflow with the essence that He is. Because it's more joyful to give than to receive. It's more joyful to take that which is so precious and to expand it outward. You're not getting the joy. You're experiencing that joy all the more by sharing it. And we saw, therefore, we human beings, mankind, made in His image, what does that mean? How are we to relate vertically to this God? Only to get your need, love, met. Go to Him to get. That's the nature of the relationship of Creator to creature. And then we saw, well, what do we do with each other? Don't go to get. That's called sin. Go to give. Go to overflow. Called benevolent love with the joy that you already have in meeting their needs. Now, why? All those last number of weeks, having said that, and there it was again, why did I do that? Because that's the foundation. Do you, do you have a basic grid? Who's God? Why create? What's the relationship? How does He respond to us? How does He love us? Ooh, that's very different than the way we love Him. That's foundational now for picking up our Bibles once again and reading on as we read chapter 2, verse 4 to the end of chapter 3 this morning. What we will see now, having that as a foundation, is the devastating fall into sin of mankind. And we will also see the consequences of that. God's response to sin, punishment. And we will see in the first three chapters of the book, mercy. Right there. The Gospel. So, 
I'm going to pick up, for time's sake, I'm not going to read every verse. I'm going to pick up, I'm going to start with verse 8, chapter 2 of Genesis. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there He put the man whom He had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the middle of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to all the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, man, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up in its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Notice first, in verses 16 and 17, God gave a commandment to obey in order not to die. Obey this. Keep it. In order to avoid death. Death. Why did God create? Who is He? What's going on? How is He going to glorify Himself? Do this in order to avoid this thing that would mean the opposite of you experiencing all of my benevolent love overflowing into you. That's what death represents. Then, God said, it's not good that Adam just be alone without a horizontal relationship. It's not all, it's not right yet, it's not good for him to be alone. Now, if you're thinking, Trish, you're thinking, Joe, that sounds like a contradiction to everything you taught. You've been teaching us that we are created in order to be fulfilled, complete, happy, vertically 
in God. I don't think it's a contradiction. Sin hadn't happened yet. And everything I have said in the last few weeks did not imply we don't need other people. It does imply we don't need them in order to get our need love met. I know I'm philosophizing. I'm using words. I'm being technical. But by definition, I have implied God had to create. Not because something outside of Him forced Him, because of the nature of the infinite joy that He is, it says that it's got to go outward. He didn't do it against His will. It was the essence of His eternal will to do that. And therefore, when Adam's created to get His need love, and therefore, when all humanity, we are to find God as our God and nothing else. We are to find our satisfaction in Him. There is something about seeing His beauty and enjoying Him as He walks with us in the garden that must be able to share it horizontally. Because the experience of how you see what I see is all the more beautiful and enjoyable when you overflow it. Thus He gave man a woman. He gave another human being another human being in order to overflow with the beauty of that. Let's just say it this way. It's one thing to stand on the north rim of the Grand Canyon and to just behold it. And to feel all the feelings that you are supposed to feel when you look at it. And it's another thing. To, I've got to take someone here with me to show them this. So that I can experience it with them and look at their face. And do you see and feel what I see and what I feel? Because the experience of the canyon is experienced all the more Fully in that horizontal relationship. Just for a moment, we're going we're gonna to fast forward. You know, sins happened and Christ is coming. But l- listen to this dynamic that we're supposed to be fighting to taste all the more. Vertical love and overflow and experience the joy we have in God more so by loving others outwardly. Listen to how the Apostle John said this in 1 John 1.4. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Strange. John said, I am writing what things? These vertical things. Verses 5 to 7. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you. Here's the Grand Canyon. That God is light. And in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. He's writing about the glorious Grand Canyon of the Gospel to Christians who are already Christians. And He says, why am I doing to set this out again in this context for you? Because... I'm after more experience of my joy. Because I'm fulfilled with the verticalness of this Gospel I'm going to share with you, I freely give and enjoy it all the more. So he says, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Doesn't life teach us that 
There is a fulfillment. And Trish, yes, there is a fulfillment on horizontal planes. And it's supposed to be for those of us who have tasted of the Spirit of new birth. Like Adam in the garden. That there's something that, yeah, that's satisfying to the extent that you share something with that other person in common. Listen to the way a missionary back in the 1700s named David Brainerd he died at age 29 of tuberculosis, was dying for years, not married, horizontally lonely, as he goes way east to like eastern Connecticut or where, I mean not west, east, west, out there to the, to the hinterlands of the American Indian. And he writes to his mission board, to, can, can you send me someone as a helper? I need someone as a helper. Please. And then he says this though. There are many with whom I can talk about religion. Because here's his point. I don't just want any human being or any Christian human being. I, I need companionship. And this is what I'm looking for. There are many with whom I can talk about religion. Now, no. 1700s. That word religion, I'm going to substitute it for what he really means. There are many with whom I can talk about Christianity. But I find few with whom I can talk Christianity itself. But blessed be the Lord, there are some that love to feed on the kernel rather than the shell. So yes, it's not good for man to be alone. Why? Because it's more joyful to stand on the rim of the Grand Canyon not with someone who says, oh, that's nice. Are you hungry? Let's go get something to eat. That'll do the opposite. But someone who says, you don't even have to say. Both of you are saying without saying it, shut up! There's nothing to say. Let's just stand here in each other's presence and enjoy it at that time. And then later you'll talk about it. Or you'll make a comment. But you're overwhelmed together with the beauty of the canyon of God in the Gospel. It's not good for us to be alone, but to overflow with the joy that we see in God. And so, that's what we have at that point. Well, not now. Let's go back. It's not good to be alone. And so God says, here, let me create a cow and a pig. You can hear the Bob Dylan song, can't you? And, <laughs> And they didn't work. He, see, there's, God's doing it this way. Why? Because God didn't know if it would work? No, He's trying to write a story so you get it. You cannot overflow with benevolent love and the enjoyment of God reaching another person. Do you see? I want you old. Here, here's a sandwich while you're hungry. But can you see the beauty and enjoy our Creator? And now, our Creator through Christ the only Savior. That's, oh, that would be all the more joyful for me if I overflowed that way. You can't do that with an animal. They're not made in God's image. They don't have a will. They don't have an intellect. They do not reason. They can't do that. And therefore, He took the rib and made another human being. That's His story. This is it. Now we got it. And we see in the text, it's flowing perfectly. Perfectly. 
Adam and Eve are, obey, are able to obey the first two commands. Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And now overflow in love, giving benevolently, not sucking the life out of the other, but of the contentment and peace that you both are finding vertically in Him. It's working perfectly. And so the text, how does it end right there? They were both naked and not ashamed. That's the narration. That's the story trying to communicate to us they were complete without any deficiency. None of us have experienced that in friendships or marriage. That we wake up, no deficiency to which I want my spouse to meet because of sin. But sin hadn't happened. Sin will happen in chapter 3. We're going to read that now. Let's jump to the end first before we go back to the beginning. The end of chapter 2 ended with they're both naked and not ashamed. And after what we're going to read, it ends this way. And the eyes of both of them were opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they were ashamed. Well, it doesn't say that word, but it's, they, they knew, ooh, got to cover up. Got to grab a fig leaf. Make loincloths. Let's go back to verse 1, chapter 3. The fall, the horrendous, horrible fall into sin in darkness of the human race. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say... You shall not eat of any tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her And he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The point of this text, simply this, sin happened. Unbelief in the human heart came to fruition. Adam and Eve ceased to display God's glory by their trust and contentment in getting their need love met only in Him. And thus they were ashamed and had to go hide from God and cover up their nakedness. This is the fall of mankind. In other words, just to, I'm really just we just let the text keep ringing in your ears right now. What we just read happened 
And what happened in the garden was not just about those two people. But every human being born from Adam and Eve since has an innate, inborn corruption of heart that will always and has always led us to sin as soon as we were able. This is the universal condition of every man and woman since it is our nature. And so two things are really clear in this journey through biblical redemptive history at this point. First is this, God as Creator has the right to use all creation in this world and humanity for His glory. And now we see the second truth right off the bat. And Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 3, 23. For all have sinned. Every human being has sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And those two truths come together and what they give us is a reason for the series we're in. They give us this book. They give us those two truths meet and that's why out of those flow redemptive history. God's history. The history of God redeeming human beings out of such a state. But So let's go back, wait, let's not leave it, and let's contemplate, let's think a little bit more about what happened here in the garden in sin. See, not only with Adam and Eve, but every human being sins. It's not just that they sin, it's that they, that you, that we are all under the power of sin. It is no fluke that the statistical probability of every baby born in hospitals throughout this world or anywhere else today, that the statistical probability that every one of those babies will sin is 100%. Just the way it is. We sin because it is the nature of our hearts to sin. Listen to how Paul said this. Turn to Ephesians in the New Testament, chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. The Apostle Paul said it this way. He's talking here now to Christians who have been converted to Christ. Something supernatural has happened to them in their heart. But he says it this way, starting with verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Paul said, by nature, 
children deserving wrath. Because by nature, we're sinners. Every one of us is born into this world with a depraved, corrupt heart. With a messed up, bent, and godless will. A desire factory that is meant for God and has been vacated. It's called the God-shaped vacuum. Jeremiah the prophet meant everybody when he said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So, where did all that come from? Where, I mean... I think every one of you is saying, well, I know it's my experience. But why? Where did this come from? How did this happen to us? The Old Testament answer is what we just read in Genesis 3. In a moment of catastrophic will of humanity, they ate. They ate from the forbidden tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And their innocence vanished. And a hole in their heart was there. For God who filled it was God. And they knew they were naked and hid in fear entered. The New Testament answer, it's no different, but it's explicit because you say, wait a minute, I see that happen to Adam and Eve. I didn't see it happen to you, Joe. Well, the Holy Spirit's divinely inspired word through the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5 makes it clear. Turn there with me. Romans 5, starting with verse 12, reading to verse 21. Paul, what's your exposition of Genesis 3? Come on, tell us. Therefore, Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted when there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam who was a type of Christ, who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace by the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man that sinned. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, So one act of righteousness leads to justification of life for all men. 
Whereas by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness to leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, that's a massive text. We're not going to deal with this whole text in the glorious gospel of justification by faith alone through Christ's righteousness. Not at all today. But notice how crystal clear the Holy Spirit is through the Apostle Paul. In verse 12, sin came into the world through Adam. Through Genesis chapter 3. Through one man in death came through sin. Verse 15, Many died through one man's trespass. Verse 16, The judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Verse 17, Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through the one man. Verse 18, The trespass of one man led to condemnation for all men. Verse 19. By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Theologically, for the last almost 2,000 years, the way we discuss this, it's like the word Trinity is not a Bible word, but we, we have to wrestle with what we see in the Bible, and then that's what theology does, and you get words, and so we use Trinity, and it's, it's a biblical description of God. Well, here we call what we're seeing this morning original sin. See, original sin doesn't mean, oh yeah, that's right, the original sin, Adam's. It's not what that term means. It means the sin nature of humanity, that because of that sin, all humanity subsequently is birthed in it. In swimming in it, the light had gone completely out. It is now the nature of all, save or accept one who would come. It's universal. And it's all owing to the fall of Adam. When we talk about we are sinners, or as Paul says, the nature of sin, we do not mean we're sinners because we sin. We mean we sin because we're sinners. That's who we are. That's our nature. That's the biblical clarity of the issue. It's the biblical reality. And I'm very confident it is the very real experience of every person except one who ever lived in human flesh. Now, whether it is just for God to subject all humanity to Adam's condition in the fall 
hangs on whether God, as Creator, has a right to somehow in His purpose in creation have created a unity between Adam and all of his offspring that would mean that the essence of his new nature, that, that, that horrible fatal flaw, would be passed down from generation to generation. Brings up lots of problems, which we're not going to deal with this morning. I don't have time this morning to deal with the problem of moral accountability connected with, well, God's the one that subjected humanity because of Adam's sin. All of us. I'm born that way. I didn't get to go to the garden and get a shot at it. You just, just, I don't have to, just very briefly though, we're all morally accountable. If you go commit first degree murder and you're on trial in the state of California, trust me, your argument, to, if you get up there and say, I don't think you should convict me, I don't think I should be morally accountable because I couldn't help myself. I was so angry. That I had to do this person in. It was drilled me. I couldn't do nothing else. Oh yeah, we should let you go. No. Well, I know that what you just described is probably true. Actually, I know it's true. But you're morally accountable. Here's one thing we know. We all sin because we want to. And that's what makes you morally accountable. You're, you're, you're not forced against your will to sin. You sin because that's what you choose and want to do. And you always choose what you desire to do. But I've talked about this subject in other sermons, and I will again when we hit it. But two main points I do want to make clear at this point about original sin, about the fall of man, about the nature of sin, about the depravity of everyone's heart. First is this. In the fall, God did not add something to Adam or to human nature. He did not, in other words, add, you fell, here's my judgment. I'm going to add to you this evil principle. No. The fall is not owing. Sin nature is not owing to God adding. It is owing to something we lost. There's a difference. In 1 John 2.16, John says this, The desires of the flesh, don't turn there, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of possessions are not from the Father, but they're from the world. Let me, let me say it this way. In the fall, God took from mankind the light by which we could see His glorious desirability above everything else. It's God. Thus, we're left in darkness, a vacuum, a void, a loss of God's precious, glorious, eternal, personified love that He had in the vision, in the sight of Himself. And now we can't see it. And thus can't desire it. We don't desire it. But we do what John just said in that text. We go after everything else. 
and try to fill that. Oh, I think I can find my happiness there, 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 in everything but what is the essence of true happiness, God Himself. So God did not add an evil principle. It is the loss of something. It is God pulling back and because of sin, judgment comes and it is His making a distance between the light of His glory in the human heart from the human heart. That we know. Second truth is this. Our conscience, think about it now, it's not true about it. Our conscience testifies, witnesses. You just, you know, the atheist knows. That's why they want to be an atheist. We know we're accountable to this God, if there's a God. We know we're created. We didn't do it. There's something there that says, I'm accountable for my life and for my decisions. And we also know that our experience in being human beings testifies that we are corrupt before this God. Look, every one of us knows we are prone to turn away from God and holiness and His righteousness. And we also know we're accountable not to do that. We know it. Let me just sum it up at this point this way. This morning, we'll come back and discuss different other aspects of this fall and who it made us to be. But to believe as Christians, we call ourselves Christians, to pick up this book, to believe in original sin, to believe that not only Adam and Eve were involved, but us, we, were all involved and because of Adam, we're all plunged into sin. To believe that is so important. It's so important for you to understand yourself. And it's so important to understand the Bible. And if I really narrow it, it is so important to understand the Gospel of Jesus Christ. See, there are Christians who balk at this. And I just want to say, do you, what do you think the Gospel is? You, no, it's not right. There's something unjust about Adam being my representative and thus I am born a sinner. And I say, do you have a clue what the Gospel is? <laughs> Don't you know that he's the first Adam and then there's a second? His name is Christ. You're going to reject God's right to have Adam as your representative? What do you do when the Gospel says another man came and he can be your representative? You weren't in the garden and you didn't commit that sin. And neither did you live a perfect righteous life. But one other person, Christ, represented it and did it for you. That's it. I don't, that wasn't in my notes, and we're going to get there. But gosh, it's so important to understand. Because if you reject original sin, you're not going to get what the gospel really is. You, might, you actually may be born again. Don't get me wrong. Because that's a miracle of Christ. But don't you want to really say, what are you talking about in Romans, Paul?
Now we'll get back to where we're going. It is really important to get it, to think about it, to hold this, to try to understand what I've been trying to say this morning. Make it part of your Christian understanding. As we move through redemptive history, and so I just summarize it again this way, all people sin due to the depravity of their own heart. Can't blame anyone else in that sense at all. And all people come into this world with that depraved heart. Because there was a unity that was established by God between Adam and all of his offspring, which results in the spiritual death. Dead to God, dead to wanting Him, dead to wanting to find your need, love in Him, and fulfillment in Him. We're born that way, and it's passed on from generation to generation. Now, let's go back to Genesis 3 again. Here's the other big question this morning. Having said that, what is the nature of sin? I mean, we say sin. Oh, disobedience. What do you mean? What is at the core of it? And notice in Genesis 3, verses 1 and 7, notice Satan's strategy was to foster unbelief in the heart. Eve began to buy the lie that God's not really for you. Say it this way. Eve began to buy the lie. These sermons in the last few weeks that God is infinitely and gloriously happy and He is just itching to meet every need to make you as infinitely or as eternally and as long-lastingly and utterly happy with Himself. Not really. That's the lie Satan tried to say. Remember, here's what we're working on. Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, 17. Here's what God said. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely eat die. And now, in chapter 3, the serpent comes and misquotes. I'm going to pause for a moment. There's a le- I think there really is a massive lesson that I'm not reading into it. Because we live in a Christian culture today where word is not important anymore. Sentences propositions like I've made this morning about sin and original sin. There's a lot of the evangelical church buying into images, vision, this, that, to make it more happy, more flippant. And the more that happens, the more you get away from what does the text say? The more you open to have Satan come and say, didn't God say? And you, okay, sure. Maybe. Words are important. You don't think so? The second Adam, he was led off to the desert, wasn't he? And Satan tempted him. How? Quoting Bible. Jesus wasn't fooled. That man passed the test. Jesus, if you're the Son of God, make bread out of these stones. 
Is your truth there? Yeah. But Jesus was well versed in Scripture. Because Jesus, and we need to do that. Well, Joe, I'm going to start. I'm going to, I'm going to, yeah, I would. Joe, how can we be morally accountable? What about this text? You better, you better make me deal with those other texts. Well, Satan, maybe true, but Satan, it says right here, you shall not tempt, or man shall live by bread alone. Not live by bread alone, but by every word, every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Well, here's a text, Jesus. Throw yourself down from this temple. He shall take His angels and they won't let you die. Yeah, that text is there. But that doesn't say everything about this situation. text also says, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Now, words are life. Don't let people fool you. Let's get back to the text. Satan says, You shall not eat from every or any tree. Eve caught it. No, 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 no. We can eat from any tree but one. See, in the writer, the narrator knows what's going on here. And Eve left out the word surely, which really means freely. God said, Adam, ultimately Eve, see this garden. You may freely eat. She's starting to slip a little bit. Well, God said we can eat. Not freely. Eat. So she replies, look at verse 3. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden. Neither shall you touch it. It's not in my text. Where did Eve get that? She didn't get it from God. The narrator is saying, God said, freely eat. And there's a tree in the middle. It's called the tree of life. He's saying, I'm not eating that from that. It's a tree of life. One tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat. And Eve somehow, you can see, maybe God really doesn't want me to be too happy. Because we're not supposed to eat from the tree that's in the center. Center, it means the centerpiece. The core, the one in the middle. And then, not even touch it. That ain't there either. Where'd she get that? Shall not touch it. See, the narrator is communicating to us that Eve is beginning, beginning to get the feeling that God is being selfish, holding back, not truly benevolent. He doesn't. There, there's stuff God hiding from you. And the serpent now starts to see unbelief rising more, and he jumps on it when he says in verses four and five. But the serpent said to the woman. 
You will not surely die. Let's stop again. Well, God said you would. Charlie, I'm going to change the subject again because of the principle here. God said clearly, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Satan says, wrong. It scares me when Christian people flippantly read text and say, wrong! Or they would never say it that way, would we? What would we do? We would say, well, it can't really mean what it's saying. Like about original sin. That ain't right! We all got a free will and a choice here. Oh. No one comes to me unless the Father drags him. Nope, wrong, doesn't fit. You think it's only your voice if you do that. Let's go back. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, Eve. God knows this. He knows how great it would be for you and He doesn't want you to have that greatness. And you will be like God Himself, knowing good and evil. In other words, Satan saying, Eve, God doesn't want you to share in all the joy that He has in Himself. God ultimately, Eve, He's a killjoy. Go off, Eve. Eat. Make your own way. Make your own road. Find happiness apart from Him because He's not out to give you true happiness. Say it this way. Do you see it yet? The fall or sin, the act of disobedience consists in unbelief. Meaning, I don't trust Him now. I don't trust what he said. Satan might be right. Unbelief. Let's get that. Because if I were to say, see it? Here's sin. Sin is just, that's what it is. It's disobedience. What do you mean by that? And you might get it dead wrong. You might think there's a type of... Okay, there's obedience. God gives command. You're supposed to do them. That's called obedience. And there's other thing called grace, totally apart from that, which uh, is only gotten to by faith. So therefore, faith and obedience are not intricately connected here somehow. And you may really miss it. Now, why do I really drill on this point? Because, well, because that's sin. Sin is unbelief. Whatsoever, Paul said, is not a faith, is sin. And the narration of the beginning of the Bible makes it crystal clear. Unbelief arose in the heart. And then, why? What did they partake of? Not an apple. I don't know. That's tradition in history. It says it clearly in the text. The tree is called what? And it's called something because it meant something in Hebrew. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, that phrase, you've got to remember, when God, through Moses, gives the first five books of the Bible, these people speak Hebrew already. 
It wasn't like, here's a God language called Hebrew, and we don't, what are these words, like a new language? No. And in that language, this idiom, knowledge of good and evil, exists. It meant something to these Israelites. And we see it elsewhere in the Old Testament. We see it again in chapter 3, where God Himself has it. God has the knowledge of good and evil. In chapter 3, verse 5, chapter 3, verse 22. We see Solomon, King Solomon in 1 Kings 3.9 prayed for it. What? The knowledge of good and evil. And we also see that little children in Deuteronomy 1.39 don't have it. Why? Because this meant the idea that you come to a place of maturity and independence where you can determine for yourself what is good and what is evil. What is helpful what is harmful. That's what it meant. You come to an age of accountability. That's the kind of term we use now. Well, that, ch- that child really doesn't know enough. Yeah, hasn't come to the place for moral culpability for that or this. And maybe even sin we talked away. And the term for that in Hebrew is the knowledge of good and evil. They haven't come to a place of now you can grow up and be independent of mommy and daddy because you're becoming to your own Adulthood, maturity, independence, responsible for your own decision. So that's what the term meant to them. And now God has it put in the narrative here of the fall. Thou shalt not eat of the tree. This one tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So that, what does he mean? When he says that, you don't humanity don't. I've created you. I'm for you. I am perfectly, infinitely happy. I have infinite, unbounded, perfect wisdom for all of your life and existence for all eternity. I'm here for you. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't In other words, come to a place where you reject Me as the all-wise, all-sufficient One who is a Father and a caretaker for your eternal happiness and joy. And go apart from Me thinking I'm going to be like you and come into My own independence and choose for Myself what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil. He's saying, by thee, Idiom and the analogy of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. Don't exchange roles with me, creature. Don't try to pursue your own grown-up independence in relationship to me. There's an independence which I, God, alone possess. And so, when the temptation of Satan, ooh, it's working, that's why he goes on to say, and he drives it home, you will, just challenges God's words directly, you will not surely die. You know better than God. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, you do not need to remain like a little child dependent on your daddy. God, grow up! That's what He said. 
and man ate and chose to spurn God and go his self-sufficient independent way. The core of sin, the very core of that, any acts of sin is always this, I don't want to be dependent on Him for fulfillment, happiness, contentment, wisdom. But it is to go our own self-reliant, self-confident, self-determining way. All sins flow from our inborn unwillingness to be like children and to trust our Heavenly Father, the Eternal Creator, to decide what is good and what is evil, what is good for us and will lead us to enjoy Him forever. Does it make sense, therefore, when Jesus comes and He says, unless you become like little children. Dependence! You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The essence of faith. The result of the fall was that Adam and Eve did not get the happiness they were seeking to get in the act. But they were cut off from God's presence a loving, caretaking, happiness put in you to enjoy me presence. And they were like little children out on their own on Hollywood Boulevard with utter fear and trepidation. And so they tried to cover it up and have been trying to cover it up with sex, drugs, alcohol, relationships, money, Grand Canyons, statues, and everything else we possibly could. And so, I won't take the time to read it. The narration goes on to the re- in the rest of chapter 3 where we see God's response. Twofold. Punishment. There's consequences for rebellion. Unbelief disobedience. And secondly, right there in Genesis 3, mercy. First we see though, He says to the woman, there's going to be a lot of misery because of this for you. And He says to the man, a lot of misery for you. And there, He doesn't say it, but here's the implication. This world now is thrown into corruption because of sin. There will be earthquakes. There will be tsunamis. There will be cancers. There will be death through sin everywhere. This is God's judgment. And ultimately, we're going to see those things are only pictures of the real, horrifying, eternal judgment of God. We'll get there. This morning, without any comment, I'll just let Paul's words stand and leave it at that in 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 and 9. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, 
They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. But also, right there in chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 15, hear it. God says to Satan, ultimately, to the serpent, I, God, will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he, ooh, there's a prophecy here, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise His heel. It's Christ. Mercy, besides God showing mercy, making them animal skins, clothing them, He prophesies to the tempter, something's going to happen that I'm going to do. And it's called in theological books, the Proto-Evangelium, the first sounding of the Gospel. It's a prophecy straight from God to the serpent about Christ. And so, even here in this very sober morning, we have great reasons as we're reading the text here in Genesis to believe that God's original purpose in creating to glorify Himself will be realized despite sin. And so, over the next two weeks, we're going to see that God does not condone sin. He doesn't just sweep it under the rug. And punishment is right there in chapter 3. Judgment is right there. And He doesn't condone it. Now hear it. It's where we're going in the next couple of weeks. And that is the glorious backdrop, foundation for mercy. Judgment is needed for the eternal experience of mercy through Jesus Christ. In other words, the question is, how can God be merciful in this light of what we've just seen this morning without denigrating His own glory, Himself, His own perfections? And so next week, first, we're going to settle on the very sobering topic that comes out in chapter 3, and we'll look at it through the rest of Scripture, of God's eternal glory, holiness, love for Himself express itself in wrath, judgment, condemnation, hell. And then, the next week after that, we will see that's what makes the cross of Jesus Christ prophesied right there in Genesis 3 make sense and make us love those of us who are being saved by Him love Him and that cross all the more. Let's pray. 
Oh, Father, it is a merciful thing to come face to face with our own sin, our own conscience, with true guilt, and to flee to You through Your Son and His work on the cross and His life in this earth. And so, Father, I pray that the I mean this, Your glory showing forth in the reality of the fall of mankind and how we're related to that and accountable to that. I pray that that go deep this week. I pray it prepare us for the truth of Your wrath from which You are saving us. So that will prepare us for the heights of the glorious cross of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ.